This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 6th of July 2021. I'm glad you mentioned the date, Norman, because I would like us to go forward in time to the 6th of July 2022 and maybe get a glimpse of what Australia's management situation with COVID is in one year's time. Step into my time machine, please. Okay, with some trepidation, I will. Don't you trust me? Yeah, no, okay, let's go. Welcome. Wow, here we are in the future, Norman. Flying cars, you know, pizzas that rehydrate and microwave-like things. This is it. And can even book a holiday to Port Douglas. Well, come on, let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, truly, what does 2022 winter look like in terms of COVID? Well, we should be, by next winter, fully immunised. And by fully immunised, 80% plus of the population covered with two doses of vaccines. Those who've had two doses of Astra have had a booster. Maybe everybody else has had a booster of Pfizer or Moderna or Novavax. And we're in pretty good shape. In fact, a way of getting a glimpse into that future is Singapore right now. Singapore is a really interesting example. I covered it last night on 7.30. And they are, in terms of our stages, as announced by the Prime Minister late last week, somewhere between stages two and three. And what that means is that they have moved, they are moving, they've just announced this new policy of they're not going to report daily cases anymore. What they're going to focus on is hospitalizations, ICU admissions and people who die. Is that covering up the data or is it just refocusing on what's the biggest risk? What's happened is they've learnt from this most recent cluster. So a few weeks ago, they went into more severe restrictions. They don't call it a lockdown, but just more severe restrictions. Just remember, in Singapore, they have a multifaceted approach, not too dissimilar from ours, but they haven't lifted a lot of the restrictions over time. So everybody wears a mask. That's standard. There are social distancing rules, which have been relaxed a little, but not a lot. And they, but they clamped down quite severely when they had several clusters around the city um, breaking out. And they've had several hundred cases in the last few weeks. Now it's coming under control. But what they noticed was, and this is against the background, this is the most important part of it, this is against the background of their immunisation rate. So they're immunising with Pfizer and Moderna. And they have about 57% of the population single dose and about 40% of the population, but 37%, who've had two doses. And even at that level, which is below the level that most people consider herd immunity, if you look at the people who've been diagnosed as cases, there's been no hospitalizations at all in people who've been fully immunized. In the partially immunized, in other words, people who had a single dose, there have been some hospitalizations, some admissions to ICU out of these several hundred cases, but no deaths. And then if you look at the unvaccinated, they've had a small number of deaths and more ICU and hospital admissions. So it's quite dramatic, the impact of vaccination. And what they've realized from that is that going for a zero spread approach which they've kind of moved away from anyway, is what they should accelerate now. So what they're saying is no daily case reporting, focusing on hospitalisation data, moving towards uh, lifting hotel quarantine 
entirely, but they're going to maintain contact tracing, surveillance, and isolation of people who are affected moving forward, so to keep a control on the situation. So they've not said there's going to be no lockdowns moving forward, but it would require quite a significant loss of control moving forward. Okay, so Singapore has less than 6 million people and they all live in one city compared to our very, very big and not very densely populated island nation of Australia. Is it a good, is it a good analogy for us to be looking at? Well, you can see the impact of vaccination at lower rates than you might imagine would get an effect. So if we got that on a national level, that would, have, that, that would be good. They've obviously had a greater supply of the vaccine than us. And the question for us is how long it takes to that, get to that sort of level. But it might mean that you could lift significant restrictions in Australia if we got to lower levels than you might imagine. Also last night, and also on the health report this week, had Professor Raina McIntyre talking about her modelling at the Kirby Institute, which suggests that if we were all immunised with Pfizer, herd immunity would be reached at about 66% of the population. But with the mix of Astra and Pfizer, it's more like 80% plus. But the speed at which we get there is dependent on supply and the logistics of getting it into arms. Yeah, and if uh, 10 minutes a day of coronacast isn't enough, Norman and Tegan, for you, you can check out the health report um, on in the usual podcast places. Norman, we've had a question from Liz looking forward about what, how we deal with COVID long term. And she's asking, once our vaccination rate is sufficient for us to treat COVID like flu, will the test, trace and isolate strategies nonetheless still be required? So Ryan McIntyre and also Brendan Crabb at the Burnett Institute would both argue that Yes, for the foreseeable future, we are going to have to be careful with mask wearing. Can't give that up entirely. That we are going to have to have a test, trace and isolate capacity. But the extent to which you would use that would really depend on the level in the, in the community. But it's likely for the foreseeable future, you will isolate people who, t- who become cases. Well, I guess we'd better head back to 2021 now. But just a final, final closing thoughts on how you're thinking we're looking here in 2022? We're looking pretty good by a year from now. I'm hoping that by the end of this year, we're really moving into stages two and three. Oh, well, better get back in that time machine then. <laughs> Welcome back, Norman. And while we're still Sorry, here... Sorry, I left my leg in July <laughs> 2020. Oh, yep, I've got it. It's back. It's back now. Yep, got it. So here we are back in 2021 and there's a paper that's been released recently talking about a question that we get a lot from our audience. How long does immunity last when you get COVID-19? It's really a review of the evidence in the British Medical Journal. And the answer is, unfortunately, still people really don't know, but it looks as though it could last for years, in fact, in some, in some instances. Certainly antibodies last for quite some months and maybe about a year, but antibodies are not a great measure of how immune you are because you retain their memory in other cells called T cells. And it really depends on how well established the immunity memory is or the immune memory is in T cells. And that could actually last for years. What will mug us is variants and whether or not the memory that we've got to pass vaccines equips us for new variants. Do we have more information on the comparison between if you catch COVID, the disease versus getting vaccinated against it and how long those those different immunities last? Yeah. So we quote a study in Nature, which looked at people who had SARS-CoV-1 in 2003. As in the original SARS. That's right. And that they, 17 years after SARS-CoV-1, they still had immunity measurable in some of their T-cells. 
So that was a long time. The difference with the new vaccines is the new vaccines seem to give a deeper, broader immune response than the natural infection. And that's probably the first time in medical history that's ever occurred. That's so interesting. Do they know why? I think it's just that the vaccines that we're seeing now, such as mRNA and the viral vector vaccines like Astra, get inside the cell and create a genetic message inside the cell to produce the spike protein. And that's somehow along with the spike protein, provides a very profound response. And on vaccines, we've got another question from Mark who's asking a question again that we've heard from a lot of different people. Is the AstraZeneca vaccine safe for breastfeeding? I know Pfizer is safe, but there doesn't seem to be as much information on AstraZeneca. Generally accepted? Yes, because you're not... You're not being vaccinated with the virus, you're being vaccinated with a genetic message. And yes, it's considered safe. There does also seem to be evidence that indicates that the baby benefits from uh, antibodies in the breast milk. I was going to say that. I mean, that's the way of immunising your baby to some extent. And a comment from Laura who says, uh, we said yesterday, Norman, that to achieve the national target, we'd probably need to vaccinate 400,000 doses a day. And you weren't sure whether any country in the world had done the equivalent of that. Laura says Spain has. Yeah, quoting figures, I haven't checked them, 750,000 doses a day for a population of 47 million. So that's getting close for the Australian population of about three or 400,000. Again, I asked Rhonda McIntyre that question and her, her number is 300,000. We'd have to get to 300,000 doses a day to achieve um, a reasonable time frame for full immunisation. Does Rhonda think that's possible? It's possible. It just requires a lot, you know, a lot of changes compared to now. Well, folks, keep sending your questions into abc.net.au/coronacast. But that's it for today. We'll catch you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>